be seated. And kids, you can start making your way to your class. And uh, as you do, see, Maxine, go ahead and pull up the image there. Last week, we looked at the image of the Oregon duck mascot. And uh, we thought that was a good image to illustrate what we were talking about last week and this week, because sometimes looks can be deceiving. And you look at the Oregon duck mascot and think, oh, what a cute, cuddly guy. But actually, he's probably the strongest guy on the entire field because he averages, and this is in the Chip Kelly heyday, he would average because he'd do a push-up every time they score for each point they'd score. So when they were scoring 70, 80 points a game, he was doing, on average, 600 push-ups a day in that 40-pound suit. So this duck, he looks so soft and cuddly, but actually... Don't be fooled. That's a, that's a strong man in there. And they would joke that he's probably the strongest person on the whole football team is in the duck costume. And what we want to talk about this morning is how do we become spiritually strong? Last week, we, we heard Paul's call from Ephesians 6 to stand and to be strong and to wake up. You're in the midst of a spiritual war and you need to get ready for battle. So it was a call for us to prepare for spiritual battle. And then this week, we're going to look at how to become strong. And uh, I realized this morning that I printed, if you're looking at the bulletin and think, hmm, this doesn't look quite right. It's not quite right. (laughs) So there should be sermon notes on one side, not announcements on both. But you're in luck because I only have three points and there's just one word points. So what we're going to look at is the provisions, prayer, people. So we got the what does he give us for strength? He gives us provisions. He gives us prayer. He gives us people. So hopefully we can follow follow along. And we're going to spend most of our time thinking about that first one here in Ephesians chapter 6. What are the provisions he gives so that we can be spiritually strong? We can stand, not get tossed around. What we saw last week is that there's things coming against us from every direction, and it's hitting us. So how can you stand? So let's, let's uh, read the passage, and then we're going to go in and look at the provisions, prayer, and people. So we're going to pick up in verse 14 is where we start, but let's look at 13. Therefore, of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, st- to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness that's given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, who is love incorruptible. So here we see Paul laying out for us the three things that he's going to give us so we can be able to stand. And the first one is provisions. So let's walk through. And it's really 
it's just intriguing. You know, I don't know if this is a coincidence or not, but it's just intriguing that in the first part, Paul gives, he uses the word against six times. So there's six different things that are coming against you. We have to stand against Satan and his schemes, and our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against principalities. All these things, six different things are against you. And then he gives six pieces of equipment to help you fight. And then he uses the word prayer in the last section. He uses that as a, either a noun or a verb six different times. So here's these things that are against you. Here's the way you're going to be able to stand. So let's look first at the armor. The armor of God, it comes by way of, of truth and righteousness and faith and salvation and, and sword, which is the spirit. So let's kind of walk through each one of those. But as we do, it's intriguing to know this is the armor of God. This is God's armor. And it comes, this references Isaiah 11, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 57, that all of these things is armor that God wears. And if you remember the story with Saul, King Saul and King David, King David is, David is a little boy. He's going to go fight Goliath and he puts on Saul's armor and it doesn't fit. It's clanky. He can't move. So he has to take it off. But here's God's armor. And the amazing thing is that he works it in such a way where it will fit all of us. It's not just something. And so in this armor, it's something he gives, but then it's also something that he does. We're going to have to stand in the strength that he provides. So each of these pieces of armor are both a gift that he gives to us, and then they're a virtue that we have to cultivate and work into our life. So they're gifts and they're graces. They're gifts and then they're things we have to um, work. So let's just kind of walk through each of the six. The first one is truth. He said, put on the belt of truth, or if you've heard the old King James is, gird up your loins with the truth. And so the key idea here is that truth is something we have to know, and then we have to uh, appropriate or work into our life. And all throughout Ephesians, he's told us about this, this truth. So in Ephesians 1, it's in Christ when you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel. So this word of truth comes to you, and then you believe, and it transforms your heart. And then he's called us to be people who then speak the truth. You speak the truth to one another in love. Speaking the truth in love, that's how we grow up to maturity. Let love and truth be marked in how you talk. And so now we are people who take on, put on truth. There's an interesting phrase. It's kind of hard. It's like to put on the belt of truth or gird up your loins. The idea is that you're wearing kind of this flowing kind of baggy kind of thing, and you got to get it together so you're ready to run. I actually saw a good illustration of what it can cost a man not to have his loins girded up. We were at the magic game. And they were doing this contest. It was like, you know, American Home Mortgage or something. And you have two people who they have to race to this door. And there's like the cheerleaders are holding giant keys. And you grab the key and you put it in the door. And you open it and you, if you open the door first, you get like $1,000 off your mortgage or something. So they had two contestants running. And uh, one of them, he looked fast. He looked strong. He's kind of had the basketball gear. But his... Uh, his pants were baggy, and he didn't have in a situation where they were staying up. So as soon as he started to run, they started falling down. And you would rather, like, you don't want 15,000 people seeing your pants fall down, so you have to hold those up. And trying to run, uh, he actually lost. He lost $1,000 because his loins weren't girded. <laughs> 
And so it can be very practical. And you look at the basketball players that he was trying to emulate, like Russell Westbrook uh, was there that night. He had baggy pants too, but they were tight around the waist. They were ready so he could move. And that's what the, the truth is the thing that um, it gets you ready so you can be able to move intellectually, move emotionally. There's kind of two elements of truth. There's a, a body of truth that we need to know. And then there's a character of truth that we have to live. We have to be people of truth or people of integrity. So you have to practice truth by being an honest person. And this is one of the primary arenas of the battle because Satan, um, his primary native tongue, Jesus tells us in John, is that he's the father of lies. And he has spoken lies since the very beginning. So whenever we speak lies, we're actually speaking the language of his native tongue. And so one of the battles is the battle for truth. Now let's look at the second one, this righteousness. And then you put on the breastplate of righteousness. So righteousness is one of the gifts, again, that God gives, but then is something we have to work into our hearts. And righteousness can be a, it's kind of a churchy sounding word that can be hard for us to conceptualize what it is, but it's probably one of the most practical realities we wrestle with every single day. So the idea of righteousness is that when sin entered the world and when we fell in the garden with Adam and Eve, kind of there was four levels of brokenness that we all experience. So now from a spiritual level, it's like our soul is like a bone that's been broken. We have to figure out how to get it set right. And we have the brokenness when our relationship with God was broken. And then there's a sense of brokenness within ourselves. So now all of a sudden we feel guilt and shame. And then that then flows out to our brokenness with our relationships. We start blame shifting and accusing and, and blaming. And then that then filters into the relationship with our work and our world. So what that brokenness causes is it causes spiritual, kind of psychological, social, and vocational brokenness. And we experience the brokenness in all four of those areas. And then the question is, how can we be made right in each of those areas? And the gift of righteousness is by God's grace, he makes us right. He puts, by the gospel, it puts us, our relationship with God becomes right. And then our relationship with our own heart and soul psychologically becomes right. And then others become right. So that's what it means to be kind of put right or to experience righteousness. So the good news of the gospel is that now, and this is the theme of Paul's probably most magnificent letter, the book of Romans, is that now through the gospel, a righteousness from God can be experienced by us through faith. So we can experience the being made right in all of those areas. And notice this is the breastplate. This is going to cover your vital organs. Because it's kind of like, you know, you can take a shot on the shoulder and you can probably survive. You can shake it off, hopefully. You can take a shot in the thigh, and maybe you can survive. Now, don't quote me, med students. I'm sure there's an artery there that if it hits, you won't. But you, you get the general, the general idea. But if you take a, a shot here, the vital organs, it's, it's dangerous. You're, you, got, those are, you have to protect the things that are most precious. And what he's saying is actually an understanding of God's righteousness for us is what's going to protect your heart and soul from the accusations 
that come. Because the default tendency of every human heart is to try, we have to have something to protect our hearts when the accusations of unrighteousness come. When they come, we, we, we have to have something. And what we do, our, our tendency is to take something in the created world that could be good and turn it into a pseudo-savior, where we look to it, and the Bible's word for that is we justify ourselves. And the way you can tell the things you're using to justify yourself is whenever you feel critiqued about something. Maybe it's your spiritual life, you feel guilty that you're not giving to the Lord the things you should, or maybe it's a relational life where you're not giving to your family, or maybe it's vocational life, you're not getting, giving to your, your occupation the way you should. Whenever you start to feel those critiques, whatever you say, well, at least I, and then whatever you fill the blank in with, that's what you're using as a pseudo-savior for your own righteousness. That's your breastplate of righteousness to protect you when you feel attacked. So I'm actually, sorry, so take a moment. I want all of you to become pastoral counselors. So you're going to become soul doctors. And I'm going to paint a scenario that could have happened but didn't, sort of. And I want you to kind of think through this scenario and think, all right, what's being constructed as a breastplate of righteousness. So this is hypothetical. So just imagine. Imagine you're in this room, and it's Wednesday night, and there is an event for the dads at the local school. So you come here, and there's an event, and it's hard for dad. You got dads got to get home from work, got to get things ready. And let's say the event is some type of thing where you kind of bring your own dinner for the kids, and there's something happening. And uh, one of the dads, he, he gets home from work. He realizes that the dinner's not ready, so he has to kind of fumble through all that. He's got to take all the kids, and this is supposed to be like something fun and special. It's like daddy's night out, so he even came home a little early. But then he's got the whole um, near train wreck that is going anywhere with three little kids. And he's saying, all right, let's get in the car. And all of a sudden, there's no shoe on one. There's no shirt on the other. He's, Where's your shirt? Where's your shoe? What happened to all this? And it takes this, you know, the hardest thing he's done all day is just get them into the car, and then he gets up to the school, and then they come fumbling in, and he's 30 minutes late, and then they get to the table with the other dads who are already there, and they've already got the things laid out, and we'll call him Jojo, and uh, some of the other dads, you know what one of them is going to look and inevitably say something like, well, (laughs) can't get here on time, get here when you can. And they have no idea what JoJo's gone through to actually get there, the trials and tribulations to make dinner and to get out the door. And uh, instantly, JoJo feels that he's being attacked. His, his manhood, his fatherhood, is he a responsible father is being attacked. Now, JoJo also just happens to be a, uh, an evangelical vegetarian. So he believes very strongly and the wrongness of feeding animal products to the children. And so he gets attacked. You can't get here on time. Get here when you can. And then he looks down and he says, well, at least I don't feed my kids chicken nuggets. I mean, terrible parent. You may have got here on time, but you chicken nuggets. <laughs> right, so now let's dissect and say, all right, let's diagnose, I mean. What? What has Jojo actually has constructed a breastplate of righteousness to protect his heart when something important in his life he feels attacked? And what has he constructed his breastplate out of? 
vegetables. It's constructed out of kale. It's made out of spinach. And it's, this is the thing that when I feel like I'm failing as a father, at least I can look at this and say, I, we're still right. Because at least we do that. And the, the sinful tendency of our heart is to take anything. We can take squash and try and construct a breastplate of righteousness. We can take our, um, our financial savvy, and at least we're the kind of people who do X. We can take uh, anything. We can take where we work out, how we work out. Parents can take whether they send their kids to public schools or whether they homeschool their educational choices. You can take whether or not you eat gluten or not. And turn that into something that you're constructing a breastplate of righteousness to protect you when the accusations come. And it doesn't take a whole lot of thought to realize once real darts start flying, they're not going to protect you. And what the gift of the gospel is that you actually get a breastplate that's constructed out of Christ's righteousness that can withstand any attack. A great Swiss psychiatrist named Paul Tornorni... Tor- oh. I even practiced that name. I said, I'm going to practice his name because I know I'm going to fumble it. But I'll spell it for you. T-O-U-R-N-I-E-R. I don't think you pronounce the R on the end. Tournier. There you go. He's a Swiss psychiatrist, uh, came of age in his medical practice like in the 1930s and was trained in the psychoanalysis, you know, German Freudian psychoanalysis. And in his medical practice, he started realizing this is not working. This is actually not helping people find freedom. They still are so defensive and, and angry. And then he had a, a unique uh, conversion and then came upon the Reformed faith and found kind of this, this deep, thick, kind of robust theology to help him really think through all of these things. And um, in one of his books, he writes this. He says, in everyday life, we are continually soaked in this unhealthy atmosphere of mutual criticism. So much that we're not always aware of it, and we find ourselves drawn unwittingly into this implacable, vicious cycle where every reproach comes, and it invokes a feeling of guilt in the critic as much as in the one criticized. What he's saying is every, every time you, know, you experience those little darts, those little critiques, it actually wounds both of you. Because the person receiving it has to defend themselves, and the person giving it has a little sense of being puffed up. Well, you know, I feed my kids chicken nuggets, but at least I'm there on time. I'm punctual. And so you elevate yourself while you're throwing one. And he says it creates this vicious cycle where there's no way to gain relief from the guilt that we spread. All you can do is either criticize other people or seek self-justification. So we live in the world where that's happening all the time. Where can we go to find some protection and some help and some healing? And what one of the wiles of the devil, one of the things Satan does is try and tempt you to construct your own righteousness built on all of these things. And he wants you to do that because he knows they won't stand once the real pressure comes, once the real heat comes. Another example is John Bunyan, who, Puritan pastor in the 17th century, wrote one of the greatest Christian books of all time, The Pilgrim's Progress, and it's an allegory of, you know, Christian, uh, uh, 
Christian represents Christian, and he's on a journey from the city of destruction to the celestial uh, city. And so it's a journey on the, the journey a Christian takes to make it from this world to heaven. And it's very autobiographical. And in his book, Grace Abounding for the Chief of Sinners, he talked about how he spent so much of his young life trying to earn a righteousness for himself. And he was trying to always do kind of the channel of his trying to earn his righteousness was in the church. So he was constantly trying to do the right thing and obey the Lord in such a way where God would have to reward him with his, his favor. And it just beat him down. He, he knew he couldn't do it. And he says, one day his, his, his breakthrough came this way. He says, one day as I was passing in a field... And that, too, was some dashes on my conscience. I mean, I just felt so I'd, I'd done something where I'd fallen. And I thought, why do I continue to fall this way? Will I ever get past this? And he said, fearing lest I was still not right in God's sight. Then suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. But your righteousness is in heaven. And I thought as well that I might, that I might saw, I thought as well that I saw with my eyes that my soul Jesus Christ, the eyes of my soul, that Jesus Christ is at God's right hand. And there I say, that's my righteousness. So whatever I am or whatever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness because my righteousness was before him. I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better. And it was not my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. So it means it doesn't improve if I feel good or it doesn't diminish if I feel bad. But my righteousness is Jesus Christ himself. The same yesterday, the same today, the same forever. And then did my chains fall off my legs indeed. And now I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God that I have found. For here I'd lived for some time very sweetly at peace with God through Christ. And I thought, oh, Christ, Christ, there is nothing before my eyes but Christ. And he realized that my righteousness is there. And when the accusations come, that's where I look for my peace and my security. And he actually illustrated that in Pilgrim's Progress. There's a scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in the book where Christian is doing battle with Apollyon. So Apollyon's the demon. He's the destroyer. And uh, the way the destroyer comes to attack Christian is they, they're, they're doing battle. And what Apollyon does is put on parade in front of Christian all of his failures. And he accuses him. He says, how could you be a Christian? You, in the very beginning, you fell into the slough of despondency. You fell into the swamp of depression. You're not, God can't love you. And then he said, how could you, he, his next failure, he prayed, remember when you came by the wicked gate and you became scared of the lions? You're a coward and you ran. And then you remember you slept and you lost your scroll when you slept in this valley and you got thrown in the dungeon. He, he parades all of his failures before him. And then you know how Christian fights back. It's this beautiful scene where he looks and he says, all this is true. And much more you've left out. You don't know the half of it. All you can see is how I actually failed in practice. If you knew how I was failing in my heart and in my head, well, you'd really have some good ammunition. All of this is true and much more you've left out, but my God is a God who redeems. And my king is a king who saves. And he gives me his righteousness. And that's how we fight. We have a breastplate of righteousness that can withstand those accusations. And moving on, the next one, the next one is, no, you get your feet ready 
the readiness given with the gospel of peace. You put the shoes on and you get your shoes ready. And that means the gospel of peace becomes the thing where now you're ready to move. You're ready to run. You're ready to stand. You're ready to speak. In any situation, the gospel is what has you ready. And this is an echo of Isaiah 52, where how beautiful are the feet who come to announce the good news. And what I find so interesting here is it's the gospel of peace. But what comes to us is that uh, the gospel of peace comes to us by way of a person. He's already told them that Jesus himself in chapter 2, he is our peace. And he comes and he makes peace. That's the point of the second part of chapter 2, that he makes peace between two warring factions of people, Jews and Gentiles. He becomes their peace. And in 2.17, he came and he preached peace to you who were once far off and peace who were near. And so now we're a people of peace because peace with God has been restored. We have peace within our own heart. And now we can experience and express peace with one another. He says, this is how it comes and this is how it flows. And it's the gospel of peace that makes us eager and ready and have the power to do those things. And then he puts on the shield of faith. He says, take up in all circumstances the shield of of faith. And faith is trusting in his power to save despite all circumstances or all appearances. And our great father of faith in the Bible is Abraham. You know, it's interesting when God comes to Abraham and Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 15, and he says, Abram, Abram, he says, fear not for I am with you. I will be your shield. And it seems that the shield of faith is the thing that's going to protect us from the fear that can come our way. The Lord is our shield. And what's interesting is faith, just like truth, has two components. Whenever Paul talks about faith, he says there's an objective content. There is the faith. And so as churches, we have statements of faith. These are the, the things we believe. And so there's actual content of the things you have to believe to protect you. Because there's two types of flaming darts that can come at you, intellectual and emotional. And it's faith that's going to protect you from both. So there's an intellectual content of the faith that protects your mind. And then there's the emotional aspect of faith to protect your heart as they come, the emotional accusations. And, you know, these shields are kind of interesting things. If Paul's looking at a Roman soldier and he's thinking about the Roman shield, he's not thinking about like the Captain America kind of disc. This would be something, these were four feet tall, two and a half feet wide, big, broad, heavy things made of thick oak, then covered in leather. And what's interesting, the Roman soldiers would wear them on their left arm. And then whenever they would march in line, go into a battlefield, most Roman, uh, dur during their height, in their heyday, when Paul's, uh, uh, writing this, they would win most of the battles before they started because of in things, the intimidation factor. And so you'd have, you know, you'd have 45,000 troops marching in unison, everybody holding this big, broad shield on their left side. And they take everybody take a step in unison on the right. And every step on the left, they'd hit the ground with it. So you'd have this, this army walking towards you. And uh, people writing about this from uh, vanquished foes would say it was like, it, it like a man-made earthquake as they'd come. And it was step, boom, boom, boom. And it was a sound that the united army made when they're together. And do you realize the strength and the power that comes when you're together? Like we, we live and feed off the faith of one another. And it's the thing that's got to protect us in all of these situations. Probably the most 
one of the most stark pastoral contexts that I've ever experienced where I saw someone take up the shield of faith and to be strong was in a situation at the very first church I worked in when I was right out of college. I was like 21, and I was a youth minister at a church, and we had this wonderful a godly couple in the church, and uh, he was coming on to retirement age and had the opportunity. This was in LaGrange, Georgia. He had the opportunity to work in Cordell, Georgia, which was about three hours away. And uh, the thing, it was going to be a financial situation where for three years he could work in this job. He knew it was going to take him away from his home for three years and his three sweet daughters that he loved. But the idea was like, all right, we will we'll just go hard for those three years and then we'll be able to retire early and then we can really spend it uh, with one another. And then it was sweet. Uh, Mrs. Richburg was a mother and she had this gigantic three-year thing in their kitchen where you're just crossing off the days and you could ask her any day, Miss Richburg, how many days left? And she, well, 287 days left. And then he's coming home. And then one terrible Sunday morning, uh, she woke up and he had had a massive heart attack in the middle of the night and died, died there in his bed. And she was, our church was devastated at the time. We didn't have a pastor. I was the only person on staff. And I was like, I have no idea what to do or what to say. And she um, just entered into, it was almost like a whole army of flaming darts became concentrated on her and her family. And I remember watching her process this tragedy that she had been thrust in. And you know, the, the shield of faith that she took moment by moment, day by day was, he's not against me. He's not against me. He's not against me. And every moment when the, the, the flaming arrows of why, how could God do this to you? Why you? Why now? Why him? Why here? Every time those started flying, she just thought, he's not against me. He's not against me. He's not against me. I don't know why, but I know why not. I know that on the cross, Jesus was punished in my place, so I'm not being punished for my sin. I don't know why, but I know why not. He's not against me. And that shield of faith sustained her when the blitzkrieg came, and she was able to make it because she had the shield of faith. And then moving on, notice the helmet of salvation, the fifth weapon. He gives the helmet, and it's so fascinating because we then wear what he achieves so he comes as the author and perfecter of our faith uh, to achieve salvation, and then we aware it. And the helmet doesn't just protect you, it marks you. It lets people know whose side you're on, whose team you're on. And so this salvation, remember, salvation is by grace through faith, so all these things are connected. And what the salvation does is chapter 1 and 2, it makes us alive in Christ, raises us with him, seats us with him. And so now we have that protection. And then moving on quickly to the sword of the spirit, probably the best illustration of the way Jesus uses the sword to attack the schemes of the devils in the temptation when Satan came to him. And what he uses each time to, to sweep away the temptations is he uses the word. And so this isn't one of the big broad swords. It's one of the shorter daggers that they would have for hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so he gives us all of these provisions so we'll be able to stand but then notice the last two things that he gives the gifts to make these happen. Just because you have them doesn't mean you know how to utilize them. And the next thing you have to have is he gives us prayer. That's the direct line and the energy to unleash these things. You'll never learn the skill of wielding truth, faith, righteousness, the sword, unless you learn how to pray. Notice what he says in verse 18, praying at 
all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery. So prayer is the essence of the spiritual war. It is the, it is the most important means that's going to fuel all the other things. See, prayer is not kind of like one other thing. It is the thing that fuels all of these things. So it's kind of like if there happened to be a Florida snowstorm and the apocalypse was upon us and like you lost your telephone line to your house, you know, that might be bad because, you know, you can't communicate maybe. But think about you just lose your telephone line. But if you lose your power, then what else do you lose? Like you lose your power, your power line gets cut. Then all of a sudden you don't have refrigeration, you don't have lights, you don't have internet, you won't eventually have your phone because you can't power it. Uh, prayer is kind of like the power that's going to fuel all of those other things. And it's interesting, when, notice when should you pray all the time, with all prayer, all supplication, and all occasions. Prayer, I think, is petition for others, supplication, representing, asking. We have a lack. We have a need. And the image here is that prayer, in essence, becomes the breath of the Christian life. You know, if you're going to be strong physically, you have to learn how to connect your breath to your movement. This is one of the basic things about physical strength. And if you're going to be strong physically, spiritually, prayer is the breath that you have to connect to all of your movements. So you think about it, like you go to yoga class, and one of the things your yoga instructor, if you want to be flexible, you have to learn how to breathe into the posture. Or if you want to be strong and deadlift a lot of weight, you have to learn how to you know, breathe in and then explode out with the exhale. And then same with running, if you want to have endurance, you have to learn how to the rhythmic role of your breath with your movement. And that's the way the soul is. Prayer is the breath that we have to connect to all of these movements. It has to become, to change the image, the base note of your life where it provides the rhythm for you walking this walk of redemption. So how can this happen? You know, how can you make it so all throughout the day, you're just breathing in and breathing out prayers and everything you encounter? You thought about this and think, what if you could take like the Lord's Prayer and there's six main petitions there and turn those petitions into breath? Or it's almost like every day you wake up and as you breathe in and breathe out, it's hallowed be your name. May today, let me today hallow your name. And then may every encounter you have with someone becomes the, the breath of prayer is thy kingdom come. Let your kingdom come in this encounter. Let the fruits of the spirit be exhibited in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Thy kingdom come. You know, when it comes time for you to make important, difficult decisions, it's thy will be done. Thy will be done. When the bills come due and you have resources that are need, give us to this day. Or daily bread. When the teenagers call and say, Mom, can I go over to? It's lead them not into temptation. <laughs> Help them. It becomes the rhythmic prayer, the breath of your everyday life. You're watching the news and say, deliver us. Deliver us. Thine is the kingdom. Ultimately, the kingdom that's ultimately going to stand. We're not receiving a kingdom that's going to last. But thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. Give me peace and stability where it becomes the breath of your life. And I love what Paul says. You realize Paul is in prison. Probably in his mind, there's some debate. We don't know if this is the first time he's in Roman prison. Does he get out, then come back, possibly? Or is it the last? Is one of the last letters. He's in prison, most likely on death row. And notice what he asked for. 
Send the petition to the senator to get me out of here. Send the spiritual seals. Remember the one, the angel that busted Peter out of prison? Where is he? Look what he asked for. Give me power so that I can speak the word boldly. I'm enchained to these soldiers and I'm scared of them. Help me to have the courage to say what I need to say. He prays for boldness. And then this last thing we'll end here is that he gives provisions, he gives prayer, and then he also gives people. And this actually just struck me yesterday as I was reading through and I thought, how interesting. And I wasn't even really going to look at the final greetings. It's just, you know, these are kind of the final things in the letter, but Something struck me as I was reading it because he doesn't just send provisions. He doesn't just tell them a prayer. Paul doesn't just send the letter of Ephesians to all of them and say, hey, I'm going to hire a man to make copies for all of you. You can get your own personal letter of the Ephesians. You take it home. And if you got it, you're good. You just go home and read it and put it into practice. He says, no, I have to actually send someone to you. You need a person. He's going to send someone. Tychicus is going to come. So I think, who is that? It would be really interesting to do a, a, a study on, there's 80 companions in Paul's letters that he talks about his companions and say, who are these people? What do they do? Tychicus gets named more than some of the other ones. He actually was one of the original people who, when Paul went into Ephesus the first time and started trying to preach the gospel and plant the church, and then there was a big riot because people started getting saved, and they're burning their, um, their magician textbooks, and uh, they get run out of town. And Tychicus was one of the ones who got saved in the initial church plant and had to flee with Paul to get out of town. He was from uh, Asia Minor. And then he becomes one of Paul's, basically the, one of the men that Paul trained up in to the ministry. And then Paul then is going to send him back to Ephesus eventually to be the pastor there. He sends Timothy to put it in order. And then Tychicus is going to come and replace Timothy to be the stable pastor in that community to the church that he's writing. And what I find so fascinating is Paul, you cannot actually grow in grace and be strong without people. He has to send people and notice what he's going to do. His job is to come and to help them to know all of these things and encourage their hearts. The two things. There's things they need to learn and they have to have their heart encouraged so they can stay the course. And that's his job. And, you know, we live in a world that's trying to digitize everything. And some of those things are fine and really helpful, but certain things can't be digitized. And pastoral ministry can't be digitized. You need people in your life who are going to love you and walk with you in a spiritual way to help you grow in all of these areas. That's what we all need. We need Tychicuses in our life who are going to encourage us and help us. So no matter what type of good resources you have access to, you can't digitize discipleship. It has to happen in relationship. You can't digitize the Lord's table. You have, you're invited to a table of fellowship that you come. And so he sends people. And what we need, what I find so fascinating is that he is somebody from the area. And then Paul raises him up, trains him, and then sends him back to embed his life there to be their, their pastor there. Because we need, we need people who know us and love us and going to help encourage us. So let's think about the kind of final call that this letter gives. The final call is this call to stand firm. Stand. And one of the things it does in chapter one is it brings you up into the heavenly places and says, stand here. It says, in, your, in the world, you inhabit a place that is constantly bombarding you with demands 
and criticisms and misunderstandings and mistrust and manipulation and rivalries. And we are in a world where we are so prone to think life is all about getting and spending. And what he says is you need to be drawn up to this heavenly realm where you can stand. And you've been blessed in the heavenly places in chapter one with redemption and justification and salvation and hope and all of these things stand there. And he says, stand firm in your community, with your people, in your place. We placed you in this place with certain people. So stand and then stand firm in the spirit by his word with his people and through prayer. So as we close and think about that, think about that call to stand. Let me kind of chart out the course where we're going now. We've been in Ephesians since June, walking through Ephesians, and we're going to spend some time over the next, up until Easter, we're going to do a series of case studies looking at the primary schemes of the devil that he uses to try and destroy us. So what Paul says in chapter 6 is put on the whole armor of God. We don't want you to be ignorant of his devices, his wiles, because uh, you're, you're in a battle for your soul and for your character. And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at the, the seven deadly sins is going to be our kind of um, framing device where we say these are seven primary weapons that Satan uses to try and attack you and destroy you. So we're going to look at what are the weapons that the Lord gives us to fight against those things. So that's where we're, we're moving from here. And then we'll move up to Easter and we'll kind of culminate as we look building up to Easter and seeing Jesus' great victory. Because the beauty and the power of the gospel is we have victory all of, over all of those things. And um, see his victory over Satan in the wilderness, his victory over sin on the cross, and his victory over death in the grave. So that's where we're headed over the next couple of weeks. So let's pray and thank the Lord for this word.